Welcome to Eye on the Triangle with Seja Hindi, a weekly glimpse into our community, bringing you news from the brickyard to your backyard. Good evening, I'm Evan Garris. Healthcare inches closer to an end, elections in Iraq, and all the Oscar surprises. These stories and more on the March 8th edition of Eye on the Triangle. From the Glass Enclosed Nerve Center at WKNC News in Raleigh, it's 7.03. I'm John Boyer, and here's our top story. President Obama took aim at health insurance companies today in a speech at Acadia University in Pennsylvania. Reuters reports that the president criticized rising premiums and exclusions based on pre-existing conditions. He also drew parallels between the insurance industry's behavior and that of numerous Wall Street financial institutions. President Obama highlighted a transcript of a conference call between Goldman Sachs executives that cited increasing profits and decreasing competition. Health care will undoubtedly play into the upcoming midterm elections regardless of whether or not legislation is passed. Iraqi voters turned out en masse to the fledgling democracy's second national election on Sunday. The BBC reports that 62% of voters took to the polls despite attacks by militants that killed 38. Although election results will not be known for several days, incumbent President Minister, Prime Minister rather, Nouri al-Maliki's State of Law Coalition is expected to garner the most wins. Official results will not be announced until the end of March. The election has recently been the subject of some controversy as Iraq's debathification commission re- recently eliminated roughly 500 Sunni candidates from the ticket. Vice President Joe Biden arrived in Israel today, marking the Obama administration's highest level visit to the country. Biden's five-day visit comes amidst talk of restarting Palestinian-Israeli peace negotiations, but the vice president is not expected to participate. Al Jazeera reports that U.S. Special Envoy to the Middle East George Mitchell will spearhead any such negotiations to which the Palestinians have agreed to conduct indirectly. The peace process has been on hold since a major Israeli offensive against the Gaza Strip in December of 2008. Soldiers in Nigeria are attempting to quell sectarian violence that has so far killed hundreds, according to France 24. Acting President Goodluck Jonathan met with Nigerian security chiefs today in order to discuss how to contain the conflict while relief workers continue to assess the conditions on the ground. The fighting is situated around the city of Jos, where Muslim herders attacked Christian villages Sunday morning. The attacks are thought to be retribution for similar attacks on Muslim villages in January that left hundreds dead. California State Senator Roy Ashburn was arrested last Wednesday morning for drunk driving in his Senate-issued car after leaving a Sacramento gay bar. The 55-year-old Republican from Bakersfield and father of four was heretofore known primarily for his strong stance against gay rights. He today admitted in a radio interview on 1180 KERN that he is gay. Justifying his voting record, Ashburn says that his votes reflect the way his constituents wanted him to vote. Meanwhile, in Virginia, Attorney General Ken Cuccinelli has caused a firestorm of controversy on college campuses across the Commonwealth. On Friday, his office sent a letter to the public universities of Virginia ordering them to remove sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression from the list of anti-discriminatory statuses. According to WSLS, Virginia Tech is keeping their discrimination statement as is. The letter stems from Governor Bob McDonald's recent reversal of a 2001 executive order by Mark Warner that added protections for state employees regardless of sexual orientation. Opponents of this measure fear that it could limit their legal resource to discrimination that gay or lesbian faculty, staff, and students may encounter. Here in North Carolina on Thursday, the UNC System Board of Governors gave final approval to language in the system-wide student code of conduct that prohibits harassment based on sexual orientation and gender identity. The code of conduct will apply to all 16 schools in the UNC system, even though many individual schools already have such language in place. The uniform code of conduct is actually the result of a board set up by UNC President Erskine Bowles in the wake of racist spray painting in the free expression tunnel back in 2008. 
and entertainment. It's never our intent to insult the intelligence of our listeners, but unless you are waiting in line for 2014 Olympic curling tickets, you probably have heard about the Oscars last night. Obviously, the big winners were the Hurt Locker for Best Picture, Jeff Bridges for Actor in Crazy Heart, and Sandra Bullock for Best Actress in The Blind Side. So honoring our commitment to be different, here are some winners which you may not have heard about. Best Costume Design went to The Young Victoria, Best Live Action Short went to The New Tenants, and Best Original Song went to G.I. Joe, Rise of the Cobra. We now go to Trevor the Traffic Monkey in Chopper 88 with a look at area roadways. We'll keep an eye out for that. In weather, I sat outside writing tonight's news on Hillsborough Street under the shadow of D.H. Hill Library. The 65-degree temperatures were worth putting up with, all the dust and the noise of the construction. But after a long and harsh winter, it's safe to say that meteorological spring has landed here in North Carolina. But that doesn't rule out a temporary return to the 50s later in the month. But all indications are that we have a week of at least above normal temperatures ahead of us. The forecast for tonight calls for clear skies and calm winds with lows in the upper 30s. Tomorrow will once again live up to expectations with a high around 70 and barely a few clouds. A storm system will be cautiously pawing its way eastward across the country throughout the week, slinging clouds and showers ahead of it in little waves, but that complicates the late-week forecast. Temperatures are going to be nice, at least 60, but no more than 70 all the way through Saturday, that's for sure. What's more uncertain is when the rain showers will be working through. The best thinking is that Tuesday night into Wednesday will be mostly cloudy with occasional rain showers, but by no means a washout. The heaviest badges of rain and thunderstorms are projected to come through on Thursday and once again on Saturday. Right now it's 53 and 7, 53 and clear at 709 here in Raleigh. On this day, 193 years ago, the New York Stock Exchange first opened, though we couldn't find out if they used an opening opening bell. On March 8th in 1957, Georgia petitions Congress to nullify the 14th and 15th Amendments. You know, the ones that give citizenship and voting rights to everyone. And don't panic. On this day in 1978, BBC Radio 4 aired the first episode of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Today in 1983, Beelzebub, or Ronald Reagan, called the Soviet Union an evil empire. And there are no birthdays today. Today is also International Women's Day, as March is also Women's History Month. And you are now up to date. The time 7.09, a reminder. Stay tuned after tonight's show for a special discussion of issues relating to three-wheeled children's transportation here in the greater Raleigh area. Join us for Eye on the Tricycle, tonight at 8 on WKNC. From the sidelines on Eye on the Triangle. Your weekly update on athletic events. Hi, and uh, welcome to the uh, sports segment. Um, I'm going to give a recap of the Wolfpack's action this weekend, both men's and women's basketball. Uh, Pretty good weekend for both of them. Tyler, can you tell us how Senior Day went? Senior Day went well. uh, uh, Forward Dennis Dennis Horner and guard Farnold DeGan went off the court at the RBC Center. With one last win in their home career at NC State, a potential NIT bid may come, so it might not have been their last action at the RBC, but their last action of the regular season. Uh, Horner had a big day, scored 14 points, eight of them down the stretch. State was down 50-49 to with five minutes left and took over kind of exactly opposite of how they'd done in several games this season with uh, 
late struggles offensively leading to losses, but it was the other way around uh, Sunday afternoon. Outscored BC 17-4 to down the stretch, shut BC down on the other end, scored at will to put that game away, and uh, final score was 66-54. to uh, Pack finished strong in ACC play this season, 3-1 and one down the stretch, 2-1 and one to start. A seven-game losing streak in between those left the uh, overall conference record at 5-11, and 11. good enough for an 11 seed going into the ACC tournament, and the Pack will take on Clemson Thursday night at 9 o'clock in the opening round. That sounds good. Can you tell us a little bit about the women at the ACC tournament? Women had a huge weekend. They didn't uh, finish it the way they'd have wanted to, but uh, I think very few fans could be disappointed with their run all the way to the ACC finals. They were the sixth seed going in. They had to play on the Thursday night game. A lot of teams that play on that night are done, if not by Friday, then by Saturday, and they ran all the way to the final Sunday against Duke, defeated Clemson 59-54 to Thursday night, took down the third seed and nationally ranked uh, Virginia team 66-59 in the quarters Friday and then beat uh, Boston College 63-57. to They were down 10 with about 10 minutes to play but came back to win that. Uh, Nikita Gartrell had a big game there, 25 points. She was definitely the MVP for the pack um, all tournament long. She had another big game in the loss to Duke, but uh, the team showed signs that they were playing their fourth game in four days and they were playing against a Duke team that's number number eight in the country, so they uh, they fell in the championship game, trailed double digits most of the half. I was at the men's game, didn't see it, but it looked like it wasn't wasn't real competitive. State actually got off to a 9-2 lead early, but after that, Duke took over and, and outplayed the pack uh, pretty thoroughly throughout that game. But finishing second in the ACC tournament is certainly something to be proud of, especially for a, a, the sixth seed coming in. It was a big, big pleasant surprise that they made it that far, and they will play in the NCAA tournament. Uh, the seeding and who they play and when has not been announced yet, but pretty safe bet that they will be dancing and not in the NITU. They will be dancing in the one everybody wants to be in. All right, we'll make sure to keep a lookout for that. Can you give us any news about Tracy Smith? Uh, some might call this a disappointment. Some might love it. Tracy Smith was named to second team All-ACC today. In my opinion, he earned first team honors, but the guys that made first team were all very good. Uh, Grievous Vasquez of Maryland, Kyle Singler and John Shire of Duke, Malcolm Delaney of Virginia Tech, and I hope I didn't miss one. Trevor Booker of Clemson was the fifth on the first team. Book, uh, Smith made second team, which is a huge honor. Um, nobody else for state was named to any of the three all-conference teams. So for Smith to make it second team was cool. I thought maybe he, he could have earned uh, first team. He had a great season, but uh, certainly no shame in, in second team all-conference in a, in a conference as strong as the ACC. All right. Thanks, Tyler. And now we'll move on to Eye on the Triangles editorial. Viewpoint on Eye on the Triangle. Evan's opinions on the latest news. The views in this editorial do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, student media, or NCSU. It's very comforting to define America as a nation of laws, definites, hard lines, and certainties, one built on reason and moral steadfastness. Reading an excerpt from any one of our founding documents projects an image of a country ripe with these characteristics and immeasurable potential. It's fine to think of America as an Eden emanating such gilded grandeur. It's sexy, hell, even patriotic. But let's stop waving the Star Spangled Banner long enough to see the tears in its fabric. 
When it comes to the problems that face this nation, reality slaps you in the face like the morning after six glasses of dry gin. What exists isn't this peachy keen black and white image of a comforting motherland, but a far less tangible wishy-washy mishmash of gray man-made goo. And boy, do we perpetuate the creation of this seemingly unchartable muck. Look at how we've shaped our public forum. Instead of valuing fact, sound judgment, and reason, we've come to favor the ugly opposite, often in the name of the status quo, free markets, and faith. Let's put this into context by glancing at the healthcare debate. I'll start by throwing a few facts and statistics on the table, all of which I can hope you've heard a thousand sometimes. The U.S. is the only industrialized nation in the world that doesn't provide health care to its citizens. Roughly 45 million Americans do not have health insurance. Medical bills cause half of all bankruptcies. Three quarters of those filings are from people with health insurance. The U.S. spends about $2 trillion on health care in a year, more than any other nation in the world. Cubans have, a low, Cubans have a lower infant mortality rate than Americans, and according to the UN Human Development Report, a longer average lifespan. There are four times as many healthcare lobbyists in Washington, D.C. than members of Congress. More than six in ten Americans with health insurance coverage, 63%, report that they have experienced an increase in the cost that they are responsible for paying under the plan in the past year. The majority of the uninsured come from working families, and due to rapidly rising health care costs, the quality of life and security for families is being threatened. Lastly, of the 23 industrialized, of 23 industrialized countries, the U.S. has the highest infant mortality rate. I could go on for eons, although it simply wouldn't matter. Quite frankly, we don't like facts in this country, especially when they're inconvenient, unprofitable, and oddly enough, particularly compelling. We have a bad habit of relying on visceral intuition in the decision-making process rather than reasoned discourse, leading to short-sighted, ineffective results, assuming the dialogue even progresses that far. The fact of the matter is that millions in this country, both with and without health insurance coverage, are suffering and struggling to make ends meet. What's more is it's completely unnecessary, yet we justify their misfortune by declaring health care a personal responsibility and by saying that we just can't afford it. Is that really the American thing to do? In all honesty, my hopes for, an effective healthcare, for any effective health care legislation making its way through Congress are bleak. If the state of our Congress is any representation, this country, we, need a serious heart check before any forward momentum can be gained. As usual, if you feel the urge to opine, send your questions or pithy comments to w- to publicaffairs at wknc.org. Again, that's publicaffairs at wknc.org. The views in this editorial do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, student media, or NCSU. This is for my people who want to take it to a whole nother level that they ain't never been to before. I said this is for my people who held me on their backs for so long. Everything I do is for my people. Let's celebrate the beauty of our people. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Now we'll take a short break, and when we get back, we'll explore the controversy with Derby Days. So stay tuned. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Eye on the Triangle's VIP. Talking to people that matter. This is Chris Chaffee for Eye on the Triangle. This week, our VIP segment has put its focus on Derby Days, an annual philanthropic event put on by the Sigma Chi fraternity in conjunction with the Panhellenic sororities at NC State. While the Derby Days tradition has been a staple of the national Greek system since 1933, there have been concerns that the event does not provide equal recognition of the efforts of all parties involved. As of 2009, the Panhellenic of Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, has pulled out of the annual event, stating that they, quote, cannot in good faith ask our women to participate in an event 
that, in our opinion, mars the reputation of the Greek community and detracts from the positive experience we try to cultivate for all our members. I sat down with Loudon Kearns, Peter Barnes, and Scotty Stimson, and Allison Harmon sat down with an NC State sorority member who asked to remain anonymous due to the closed nature of the Greek system. We sat down to talk about Derby Days in order to thoroughly explore the nature of this event here at NC State. My name is Loudon Kearns, and I'm a junior in the Biological and Agricultural Engineering program. Okay. And what is your uh, involvement with Derby Days? Me and one other fellow, Jake McCaslin, are what's called the Derby Daddies. We've been in charge of planning everything and getting it all together for the sororities to compete. The, um, the girls are the ones that actually do the events. Is that correct? Uh, the girls do do the events. They are scored, and we keep we tally all the points from each event, and... At the end of the week, which is tonight, we'll actually announce the winner. Uh, brothers also have been competing in the events. We had a dance team. We did not have a karaoke team this year, and we have been competing in the sponsorship drives and can-tab collections and box-top collections. So now do you guys compete as your own team? Yes, we compete as our own team. We're not competing against the girls. Uh, we're just doing it more so alongside them and then the competitions between all of them. Well, I guess now i got to ask the question... I'm sorry. Last, let's see, this article is from Duke Chronicle. Panhellenic pulls out of Derby Days. Mm -hmm. Why do you think people think this is like a bad event? Well, it gets kind of negative light. A lot of times the sororities don't get the recognition that they deserve. Uh, that's one thing that we've been trying to push for this year is we're helping to do it, but it's really the sororities that are making it happen. And so a lot of times that goes bad. And then also... Sometimes it can get pretty heated, and a lot of people feel like it causes trouble between the sororities. So, Have you experienced that? I have, not to the extent that other people have said to me. Like, I mean, I see girls that, you know, they're going to pull for their own team, but I've heard stories of just people being downright mean, and, but I haven't seen any of it. <laughs> like what, what, do you mind if I ask, like, what kinds of things you're talking about? Just anything you can expect. Like, if you were to go to a football game and what our fans would say to other fans and vice versa. You know, when it's done on a more personal level, people get a little more upset about it. Has there been any violations with university during Derby Days in the last few years? Mm. What, when you say violations, what do you mean? Greek life policy. Um, not on our end. Uh, being with the IFC, we've tried to adhere by all of our rules, and to my knowledge, we've done that for we've done well with that for the past couple of years sometimes we do have problems with the panhellenic which is who's in charge of the sororities but we've tried to adhere by that especially this year because we've you know they've told us about it this year and we have there has been they brought up some things that have not gone as well as they had liked the past couple of years and we've done we've done a lot of work to change most of it as well as we can um it's still kind of hard to you know get our events the way we've had them and keep them completely happy so but we've been working on it. Uh, my name is Scotty Stimson. I am a business major, uh, concentration in finance. I'll be graduating in May, and I am the president of Sigma Chi fraternity. Who benefits for this event? Like, okay. What is it for, you know, yeah. like that kind of thing? Uh, well, Sigma Chi Nationals does the Ch uh, Children's Miracle Network, but we've opted to do our own um, uh, benefic uh, beneficiary, and that is the Frankie Lemon School. It's right off there in Glenwood. It's a um, sort of a small preschool for children with developmental needs. And, uh, you know, they really, it's, it's a, such a great time for, for us to give back to them. Um, we have the, the girls come volunteer each day, so they're getting sort of that firsthand experience at Frankie Lemon. 
So, and it's in the basement of a church. I mean, it's very sort of a personal kind of a close relationship there. And, uh, you know, we love helping them out, and the kids are great. And, uh, you know, just kind of puts in perspective, you know, how lucky we all can be. And, you know, and, uh, we again, we can't thank the sororities enough for volunteering and doing all that kind of stuff. So, and so you get a trophy. Mm-hmm. Um, does that, like, reflect on your sorority in the next year? It's kind of more just bragging rights, you know, and they do it for council involvement as well. So it's kind of goes towards, uh, you know, how, how well their chapter is on, on, on. It's just, you know, just wanting another thing, more bragging rights. It helps them with recruitment and that sort of thing. And, again, I, the competitive nature of these girls is, is crazy. I mean, it's, it's wild. They, uh, you really see a side of these people that you never think you would. And um, I think that's what makes it exciting each year because it kind of builds some tension and builds some fun and some competitive nature. And, and at the end of the day, you know, it doesn't really matter how much money we raise. Um, you know, we'd like to raise as much as possible, but uh, as long as girls are having fun and they're, they're, you know, we're having fun and we're raising awareness about Frankie Lemon School and just doing something for the community. Um, because really, the, we picked this charity because we felt it had, kind of has a direct impact on Raleigh. I guess Sigma Chi is more of a supporting role, right? Because you yeah. have lots to do. Uh-huh. Um, what, 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 what do you guys do? So we, we're more like, we more try to facilitate the event. We also have um, a brother's team who raises money. And so we'll collect sponsorships. And, um, again, just we come out and support. We're there in attendance. Uh, we try to do as much as possible. This has been one of the most time-consuming weeks of the entire semester. It's, <laughs> unfortunately, it's kind of taken me away from my schoolwork. But, you know, that's okay. Graduating soon, so that's all right. But, uh, yeah, again, we just, you know, everyone tries to come out and support. We have each brother look for a sponsorship, um, bring in coins, bring in uh, uh, can tabs, lots of different things to just uh, try to compete with them a little bit. But we would never... I guess, try to win, but just as long as, you know, it's visual, visual that we're helping as well. Has there been any unhappy sentiment from the girls at State? Yeah. Have you, have you experienced that at all? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they don't like to lose. You know, when they lose, they're not happy. And so, again, we've been trying to make it as fair as possible. Um, some some sororities take a little more serious than others. Um, and, you know, it's all optional. They can opt out if they want to. They can participate as much as they want to, as little as they want to. Um, and we try to give back to them by participating in their philanthropy events. So each year, you know, when they put something on, we'll try to do our part and give back to them. So um, there is a little bit of sentiment, but, you know, that's true with any competition, you know, any, any sports or anything. And, um, you know, it's, it's healthy and, you know, we enjoy it. They enjoy it. So hopefully, um, hopefully we can give a, a, a good check back to Frankie Lemon this year and, uh, the children enjoy that. This is Allison Harmon reporting for Eye on the Triangle. Due to the closed nature of the Greek community, it was difficult to get a member of a sorority to give us a look into the controversial side of Derby Days. Even the woman who spoke out against the event at Panhellenic meetings and with their friends refused to comment, citing Greek standards. And advisors at the Office of Fraternity and Sorority Life in Chapel Hill, where there have been reported problems with Derby Days, refused to comment and gave contradictory answers as to whether or not the event had been canceled. One student at NC State did agree to say on air what many other sorority women have been voicing in conversation. She requested that her identity be kept anonymous. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us. So, have you ever competed in Derby Days? I have not myself competed in the event. I've just been a spectator. I'm not, I don't sing or dance or... (laughs) 
do that. Sigma Chi participates in some of the events. Do they actually participate in the day of service at Frankie Lemon School? Mostly it is the sorority girls at the school, and the more girls you have that volunteer, the more points you Unity among Greek life fraternities and sororities seems to be a pretty integral part of the goals that Greek life puts forth. Do you think the Derby Days promotes that unity? There is no unity between the sororities during Derby Days. They barely speak to each other at the events. I I mean, of course, unless you already have friends at other sororities, which I do, um, so I will go and speak to them and say hey to them and wonder how they're doing. But in general, the sororities do not mingle. They don't you know, hey, how are you? No, like that doesn't go on. For the most part, there's no unity. There's extreme competition. Snide remarks will be made. It's very high competition, very cutthroat. Who can look the prettiest? Who can do the best? In your opinion, is the terminology used throughout Derby Days, Ride a Kai is one of the field events, Derby Daddies, the stiletto run that was in the works. Does this terminology reflect a positive or negative view of sororities, or do you think it's just all part of the game? Right. I think um, part of it is just the game. Um... But then again, you do have to be careful with the terminology used. I don't know if Radikai is the most appropriate term to use just because you you already have the stigmatism of sorostitute. So I just don't think that really helps with our image. I don't know if it hurts it, but it definitely doesn't help it. I think it's kind of degrading to us as a whole. But things like Derby Daddy, I didn't even think of as sexual or wrong. I mean, just because it's that's what they've always called it. I at least know the guy that helped us with our shorty was a complete sweetheart. He was very nice, very helpful. He was hilarious. We had a great time together. I have no issue with the term Dirty Daddy. Radikai is a little, you know, whatever. I guess the terminology could be improved on, but like, you know, how technical do you get? How much of a big deal do you have to make it? kind of thing. And is there pressure from Sigma Chi to participate or is it completely voluntary? The stories definitely do have the option not to participate. It is not forced by any means. There is no threats. There's definitely pressure to participate. You know, some people might be like you're committing social suicide by not participating. Is there any pressure from Panhellenic to act a certain way during Derby Days? You know, most people don't know this, but Panhellenic is the organization that all the sororities are part of. And most people think, oh, well, they're, you know, they're like, oh, well, there's Zeta and DG and Kyo and DZ. And they don't realize we're all under this big Panhellenic coverage. And we all have to report back to Panhellenic. Panhellenic is very strict about the sorority girls acting classy and presenting themselves in a good light and doing things in a very appropriate manner. Things like Derby Days, they're very cautious of because they don't want the Sarasitu image to be, to be labeled on anybody. We are held to an even higher standard, I think, personally, than other girls at state because we have that governing body of women to report back to who are very strict about the way we act in public. And does the Interfraternity Council have those same standards? No. Um, IFC does not have this, the same standards that... Panhellenic does just because Panhellenic is women and because of women's history and the major leaves we've had to go to to have the rights we have today that men don't and women we just play a different role in society so there's obviously not going to be the same kind of rules we don't view men like men view us so there's going to not going to be that strict regulation they can get away with more just because they're guys which is fine it's you know a fact <laughs> Sigma Chi Derby Days were started uh, by the national chapter in 1933. And obviously, 
today's society uh, with the roles that men and women play is much different from the roles that they played in 1933. Some of the complaints I've heard about Derby Days has been that it seems two mini sorority women like Sigma Chi is getting all the sororities together involved to do kind of their work for them. That they're all doing the philanthropy, the money raising, or at least the activities to raise money. Do you think that 2010's Derby Days reflect that change? Or do you think it's still in a type of 1933 mentality. But you said earlier that there is pressure from Sigma Chi to act a certain way. Yes. Yes. There is. <laughs> um, I think probably the girls that look the hottest and sexiest on the stage will probably be more likely to win than the girls that stay more conservative and 1950s homemaker. You know? <laughs> Some other schools, um, the most local example is at Duke, have chosen to completely ban Derby Days because they say sometimes it doesn't portray the image of sorority women that Panhellenic promotes. Is banning or changing the event something that you see necessary at State? I think I would be disappointed personally. For the most part, the other sorority girls would be disappointed if Derby Days is canceled or banned. And I think that is a extreme unnecessary measure. But at the same time, I think Sigma Chi does need to be careful because Panhellenic is on their back about it. Panhellenic is worried. Panhellenic is cautious. They were almost not able to do the scavenger hunt this year because of liability stuff. And so, you know, they just need to be probably just more cautious and more aware when they're planning the events and the terminology they may use. Because I don't think they sometimes, I don't think they understand the standards that Panhellenic has you know, it's okay. They're fraternity men. I don't expect them to understand the rules we have to follow by. But if you have just the sororities participating in the events, you have to take that into consideration. So if they want to be able to continue with Derby Days, they should just be aware of the rules that Panhellenic has in place and not overstep those bounds and just be, have, keep it very classy and clean. And if anybody's parents were there, they should be able to watch it and not be horrified by things that are going on you know keep it pg <laughs> the organizers of derby days did mention that they were trying to work with panhellenic to make changes to the event to comply more with the image that panhellenic wants for its sorority women what changes would you like to see made i think it'd be kind of cool if the fraternity matched what the sororities raised so say you know the sororities raised ten thousand they should raise ten thousand see twenty thousand um i know that sometimes they get sponsors for Derby Days and that they raise money that way too. Um, but say it's just the sororities primarily raise, you know, so much money by paying for tickets for the competition dance and that the karaoke and, you know, whatever all the events that the sororities do to raise money, um, the fraternity should try to match it too. And think of ways throughout the year to support the philanthropy too besides just Derby Days. Uh, Peter Barnes, Jr., Natural Resources Policy and Administration, President of the Interfraternity Council. What is IFC's role in Derby Days? Uh, well, IFC really doesn't have any direct involvement in Derby Days. We are merely uh, the association that represents uh, the common interests of all the fraternities on campus. So I guess our interests involve uh, merely we we work with... Uh, I guess with the university and kind of that way to bridge uh, individual chapters on and representing them to the university. So we have a requirement um, that goes basically every organization that deals that's over a fraternity uh, says they have to have some sort of philanthropy. So that's we we work to support it and have people participate, but we really have no control. Uh, we're 
We're just merely participating and representing the common interest and the advancement of fraternities on campus. The IFC, as far as I understand it, is the oversight organization for all the fraternities. We enforce certain matters, um, just standards for our, for our chapters, but mainly we're there to represent progress on behalf of them. So really, if there's some issue that's going on, then we'll be the, we'll be the spokesperson for the community. So uh, we enforce grades, making sure that people uh, are following risk management policies, are doing philanthropy events, are uh, basically being healthy chapters overall. Our goal is to make sure that fraternities are, are, being, are healthy at NC State and benefiting the university, uh, kind of a mutual benefit. So we, we enforce on that end, but really when it comes down to it, IFC is a loose collection of organizations and our, our executive board is merely the ambassadors for the community. We look out for the common interest for either protecting uh, the community overall or protecting chapters that are that something's happening to that's not that's not just. Have there been any Greek life policy violations in this or past Derby days? Um, as far as I know, uh, no. In the past, um, I know there's always there's always conversations about how events are ran and how and how they can be improved. Um, this year, I haven't heard anything yet, but you know, time will only tell. I, uh, as far as I've heard, it's been very successful. Um, there's been, and uh, there's been some conversations about, hey, we can improve this event this way, or like hey, I just, hey, it's really, it's nothing really of note. It would come down to, it's more of administrators saying we want it this, we would like it to be this way. So it's just, it makes us feel a little bit more comfortable. Is really what it comes down to. There, there's nothing that's that's a blatant violation. There's nothing that's a uh, that has been brought up to to my knowledge. That's you know, or illegal or anything like that. They, I mean, it's a philanthropy event. There, it's for it's for a good cause. There's all, but there's always ethical dilemmas in anything that you like, do. So, like, I there there's a lot of people. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot of people that just disagree with having a social event as part of your philanthropy event at a bar, which, um, when it comes down to it, on paper, is perfectly fine. But there there's some people that. That disagree when I'd say, "All right, well, you guys shouldn't have a you shouldn't have a philanthropy at a at a bar because they serve alcohol there." But then again, that's I mean, if you're of age and you know, everything everything the the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted and and everyone's doing stuff in good taste, then there's there's nothing wrong with that. It's just uh, people have their personal preference on it, and I, I would say that's probably the only issues that have really came up this year. Um, where, you know, people cut where administrators are, yeah, they're, they're always saying, all right, well, we could go this way. And, you know, that's their job to, to protect themselves, but also look at, look out for the image of the community overall. But I mean, overall, I'd say, no, there hasn't been any, any major stuff that I've heard of yet. So. Wolfpacker of the Week on Eye on the Triangle. A spotlight on those who go above and beyond. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Next up is our Wolfpacker of the Week segment. Wolfpacker of the Week generally focuses on someone connected to the university, but after Kirk Dittmeyer attended our WKNC staff meeting to discuss his organization, I thought his cause needed to be heard. After we talk to Kirk, we'll talk to our student of the week, Travis Hargett. Kirk, what can you tell us about your organization, Miracle League of the Triangle? Well, Sajah, um, 
Miracle League of the Miracle League of the Triangle is a is a baseball league in the local area for kids with special needs of all ages from kindergarten through high school. And actually, we've been around for about four years. Um, it was put together by the community, and we were fortunate enough to build a uh, state-of-the-art rubberized field in uh, Cary, and it's uh, located near Cary Town Center. Uh, it's got a beautiful uh, rubberized field, dugouts, full sound system, lights. Uh, it's just an incredible place for the kids to play ball. That sounds good. What? How did the organization kind of start? Well, the Miracle League has been around for a little while. Uh, back in the mid-90s, uh, a father was watching his son play baseball and realized his daughter was in a wheelchair and she was not able to play. And it just really hit him that he needed to do something to allow her and other kids with special needs to play ball. So uh, what started up in Atlanta, there are now uh, probably about 150 to 200 leagues throughout the uh, country. And uh, we're fortunate enough to have one of the nicest fields and probably one of the largest groups. We've got about uh, 250 kids playing ball on 20 teams and uh, we end up playing about 10 games a weekend when we're in season. Is there anything in particular that you need help with or volunteers? Yeah, we, we could actually use a lot of help from your listening uh, audience. Um, like I said, we've got about 250 kids on a number of different teams. So we play two nights, uh, two games on Friday nights uh, under the lights, and then we play eight games on Saturday. And each of the kids, we try to assign a local community buddy. Uh, that would be kind of a middle school and up age person that can just be with the kid, go out there, play ball with them and allow their parents to sit in the crowd. So we always need buddies. Uh, we also could use help with uh, announcing and DJing. The kids have nicknames and their favorite song. And it's just a, it's a blast. The kids have a great time. So, uh, yeah, just a miracle league of the triangle.com is a place to find out uh, the schedule, how to volunteer. Uh, but we'd love the help. Okay. And now you said this is something that you've been kind of involved in for a while. Why do you feel like it's so important? Well, uh, on a personal note, um, 16 years ago, my wife and I had twins and they were both born legally blind. And uh, we realized uh, for ourselves, it's pretty tough to connect when you've got uh, special needs children. Sometimes it can be pretty alone and you're always with your children when you try to do anything that's involving baseball or football or things like that. There are just certain things you uh, need to help out with. And uh, we heard about this cause. It seemed like something was just fantastic. And it's just a, it's been a dream come true for us. So it's a great time. Okay. And what's the game like with the kids? Well, uh, we, play, uh, we play about an hour game. We play two innings. Every kid gets up to bat. Every kid uh, gets a hit, scores a run. There are no outs. Every game ends in a tie. Uh, but what's incredible is that uh, the kids have so much fun out there. It's like, the, it's like the World Series. So we have some kids doing cartwheels, a little guy with, uh, with uh, arm bars and a walker. He throws that to the side and uh, crawls home. And they're all hams. They're just kids whose bodies don't quite work so well, but they're, uh, you know, they are all kids. That sounds good. And where can people go to get more information? Yeah, probably the easiest place to go is uh, com. That's a long URL, but com, And you can click on the help us or you can go to the volunteer site. Uh, but what I'd encourage you to do is when you go to that main site, uh, if you want to want to see what it's all about, click on that video on the front page and you'll get a real real sense of what it's about. It's a, it's a special time and it's a lot of fun. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us. And we'll post that link onto wknc.org slash blog after the show, so make sure to check it out. And now on to our Wolfpacker of the Week, Travis. Uh, Travis is going to talk to us a little bit about his work with the Sierra Club. Yeah, thanks uh, for having me on the show. Um, so last week we kicked off um, a grassroots movement to persuade Senator Kay Hagan um, to support basically comprehensive climate and energy legislation this coming spring. And I guess 
You know, a lot of people will ask, well, why do we need this legislation? Why now? We have the health care battle. Um, the economy's in the tank. Isn't this just going to add a further cost onto our citizens? And yet there are a couple of ways to look at that. Um, one is to look at um, what James Hansen has to say. Uh, James Hansen is a, a NASA climatologist, um, actually their leading expert at the Godard Institute. And um, he was at UNC a couple of weeks ago, and he said that, you know, there, there are some major issues that we're facing with global warming, or as I like to say, global climate change, because sometimes it's not warming. But um, yeah, so some of the major things we can look at, I guess, are um, sea levels rising. But these are just, you know, hypothetical, not hypothetical, but, you know, possibilities, I guess, that could happen. Um, but also we're looking at uh, glaciers melting, methane gas um, being released into the atmosphere, which will further global warming and its effects. Um, destroyed ecosystems, species extinction. But those are all on kind of the global larger level. Um, and those are all kind of off into the future. We can't see that happening right now. Um, but Bill Gates brought up something that we can see, and it's happening in Africa right now. Um, basically, what's happening are, is that the ecosystem is, um, is gradually changing in Africa, and we're seeing mosquitoes migrate to northern parts of the continent which we've never seen before, and it's due to global climate change. And uh, basically what's happening is as these mosquitoes migrate north, malaria is also spreading to larger populations. And that's, I mean, it has a drastic effect, obviously, on the continent and the countries and the, the people that are already living there. Um, so then as we move on, I think there are effects also at home that we see. Um, Appalachia, which basically has thrived on the coal industry over the last 150 years, um, is really, I mean, coal mining at its as its, at its you know essence is a dangerous um, and, and it is dangerous and it has you know many negative health effects for those that are not only mining but those are that are those that are living in the communities. Um, so NC State actually did a research project a couple months ago and they looked at Wise County and basically what's happening is these coal trucks are coming off of. Um, dirt roads, you know, obviously full of coal, and they're shaking coal dust onto the roads, and this is being kicked up, and it's, it's actually covering the houses in these communities. Um, and you were seeing increased amounts of uh, cancer, um, lung cancer, and we're seeing more commonly asthma, which is at increased levels in those communities. And you ask, well, th that's not in North Carolina. This is in West Virginia, Tennessee, um, uh, Kentucky, and Virginia, but actually we're supporting that. So if we move away from coal and we, you know, pass this global, this legislation and we find cleaner energies, we can, we can stop those negative effects. Um, so, and also there's mountaintop, mountaintop removal, which is, you know, uh, there's so many issues with this legislation, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to go on. It's just critical that we, we, we pass it and that there's a, that we get out in front and we, we push a senator to, uh, to really support this legislation. Because right now, no one wants to come out in front because there's, you know, actually political capital could be lost if the legislation goes nowhere. So we're starting a grassroots organization to try to push this, to try to stop these negative effects. Um, and yeah, I'll, oh yeah, and critical points. Um, <laughs> the office drop-ins are on Tuesdays at 1 and 4 and on Fridays at 10 and 2, and you can contact us. Um, you can contact my cell. It's 740-275-6270, or you can email me at north.1 
Carolina.chapter at gmail.com. And uh, we can hopefully uh, reverse these negative effects and pass comprehensive climate and energy legislation. Thanks. Nothing's gonna get me down Free as the wind Free as the wind It's been a long, long time Since I could say I felt so fine Community Canvas on Eye on the Triangle Your local arts news I'm Mike Alston with Community Canvas. Between Kieran and myself, we've covered quite a bit, uh, both in the fall semester and in the spring semester, in terms of the local arts, and we're really trying to expand what we've done. And one of the things we have not covered thus far is the North Carolina Symphony, and it seems like such a natural fit. So uh, Kieran and I stopped by and talked to David Warders, the CEO of the North Carolina Symphony, last Friday. And here is the result. The North Carolina Symphony was founded in 1932. So over these 78 years, how do you see things have changed, whether it's financially or in terms of the components for being a part of North Carolina life, or cultural life specifically? Sure. Well, obviously since 1932, the organization has grown up a lot and has has evolved and, and flourished artistically. But one of the really remarkable things about this orchestra's story is the way that things have not changed. Um, and from the very, very beginning, this orchestra has been about really two things, statewide service and music education. And there are a lot of orchestras out there. Um, a lot of people are surprised to learn there are actually close to 2,000 orchestras in this country. Now, only half of those are large enough to be a member of our national service organization, um, and perhaps only 50 are large enough to support their musicians on a full-time uh, basis. But this is the only orchestra that is really all about statewide service and music education. And it explains a lot of why we do what we do. But it's the thing that has always made this orchestra unique. I know that you guys put on some stuff at Coca Booth and you're doing sort of, I don't know if alternative is the word, but things that I think are sort of outreach and to find a new audience. Does that go along with the education? And, and how do you guys focus on that? I'd put those in two pretty separate buckets. Um, I think that we. We believe that orchestras can play all kinds of great music, and uh, I don't. I don't think that we think that classical music is over here and pops is 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 over there. So we try to do a little bit of a of a lot of different kinds of music. Um, when we get into summer mode, playing out at Coca Booth Amphitheater, it allows us to bring in people like Elvis Costello or Katie Lang, and just do things that you may not immediately imagine when you think orchestra. Uh, the Cirque de la Symphony show was. Um, a pretty great family thing. We'll do a uh, the orchestra. will play along with the Wizard of Oz uh, as, the, as the sun goes down and it begins to get dark this summer. So the orchestra can do a lot of things that are uh, more popular. We've got Ben Folds coming in a couple of weeks, and we've we've even done some uh, tribute bands, things like Pink Floyd and, and Led Zeppelin, and those are one way that you can reach out to the future. The future audience. The music education stuff is really very different, um, and that's a commitment to the artistic development and musical development of this state's young people. We don't, we can't possibly get to them all, but we try to get to as many of this state's uh, fourth and fifth graders as we possibly can, and that means a lot of time on the bus and performing in a lot of different venues. We spoke about the various different performances that have been put on, and annually you guys put around 175 performances. That's right. So how does the process go? Obviously this is a lot of planning and 
Where does it start, and how much time does it take and start for one performance? That, that's a that's a good question, um, and I'll first confess that one of the things that the chief executive doesn't do a lot of is getting really detailed into that process. But let me tell you how it works, um, and it's more organic than you might than you might think. It, it all begins with the music director's vision for the new season, and and the conductor, in our case, Grant Llewellyn, he's thinking about ways to keep uh, the audience engaged and ways to uh, keep the orchestra engaged and growing artistically and to find something that is a little bit new and a little bit uh, with some of the uh, masterworks and, and, and starts with kind of a gets, gets us to a, be- a beginning point and then enters the general manager and they start talking about guest artists and specific repertoire and all the different moving pieces and then you start thinking about the fact that we don't just play in Raleigh but we also play a full season in Chapel Hill, Southern Pines, Wilmington, Fayetteville, Newburn, and so now you're talking about all these different auditoriums with all their different schedules. And so if you're beginning to get the idea that this process is a really long one and involves a lot of moving pieces, then you're getting the right the right flavor. It's enormously complex, and one of the things is that you, you, you become a little fearful because right as you get to the end, one major hall not being available at the right time could cause the entire thing to go crumbling. You, you know, you, you're trying to balance the number of pianists on each series the number of appearances of our music director versus, say, our resident conductor or our associate conductor. Uh, you don't want all the Beethoven to wind up on one series and all the Schnittke to wind up on another. What I hear when you talk about all the different things that happen is really pride. And so to you, it, is it almost like you guys are all joined by a pride for providing a service? I've been in this job almost 11 years now, and I remember when I was brand new and new to North Carolina, and I, I didn't really even have a, I didn't have a deep, deep sense of ex- the role that the North Carolina Symphony plays in the scheme of, of American orchestras. At any rate, I, I show up in North Carolina and I'm kind of assuming, man, these or- these musicians have a brutal, brutal schedule and they're, they're logging 10, 15,000 miles a year on, on the bus, playing in all these different venues. And we were sitting down and having a conversation with our board about what does this orchestra have to do to get to the next level? And I'm thinking, man, the musicians surely want to get off the road and just play concerts in raw. I mean, I kind of think this must be a no-brainer. Well, I gave them an opening 25 feet wide, and no one wanted to go there um, because statewide service is what this orchestra is about. And when musicians come to this orchestra, and uh, like I said, a lot of different orchestras out there, um, they come here knowing that that's the mission of this orchestra. And I think that's just one of the uh, non-negotiables about who we are. That's cool. And I was going to ask, one of, I think you sort of almost answered my next question, which is, you know, why the North Carolina Symphony, especially for a musician, is it the climate or is it the unique, <laughs> the unique uh, service that it provides or what? Well, the landscape for orchestra jobs in this country is unbelievably competitive. Now, I can't announce to you yet the name of our new principal clarinetist. Uh, We are still working out the final uh, contract terms. However, I can tell you that just last week we held our audition for principal clarinet. It took four days, and there were uh, 122 applicants for this single position. More than 110 of them flew to Raleigh from around the country at their own expense, and they are guaranteed as little as five minutes in front of the audition committee. I mean, you've got to imagine 
if you were thinking about an administrative job, imagine showing up at the hiring manager's office and seeing a line of 110 well-qualified uh, college graduates. Everybody's qualified for the job. And, and so you've got to be just talk about having your A-game going. You, what have been the struggles for the North Carolina Symphony over, over the past couple of years? Well, I think that there's some interesting irony there in that you do have this oversupply of, of fantastic musicians who want to make music their life. And it's only really in the last 40 or 50 years where orchestras have been able to offer a, a, a living and a, a, and a benefits package that where you can really sort of with a, with any type of confidence go into it and say, you know what, I can make music my career. Um, so that's an, that's an enormous positive. At the same time, we're not immune from the economic challenges that, that everyone else is facing. Um, if you're in the orchestra business, you make money four ways. You can sell tickets, you can generate contributions from individuals, companies, foundations. Uh, we receive money uh, in the form of uh, uh, grants from government, in this case, the state of North Carolina. Um, and then there's a sort of a fourth bucket, which is everything else, uh, earnings from the endowment and, and some other small items. Um, and when all four of those go south on you at the same time, that's a challenging uh, set of circumstances. And so we had to go through some pretty painful uh, cost cutting. And when you're an orchestra or an organization, I should say, like ours, almost everything we spend money on is people. Um, and so when you're talking about uh, pulling $2 million out of your operating revenue and going from being a $14 million operating concern to at about an $11.8 $11 million operating budget, you're talking about sacrifices uh, from the organization's people. Um, but I, I get that, and uh, I'm just grateful that we were able to turn the corner, and, and I hope that as the economy begins to show uh, some forms of life, uh, that we're able to uh, to sort of get back on a, on a positive path and begin to grow again. One of the goals of Community Canvas is to sort of find out who we can thank for the ability to, to observe art and to hear art and to witness it. And so it sounds like we, we can thank this infrastructure from the state of North Carolina. It sounds like we're pretty lucky. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, we are. We're enormously lucky and, and, and very, very fortunate. Um, the, the, the men and women who made that first decision in 1943 uh, to begin funding the orchestra, it was, a, it was I, I don't remember the, the name of the, the number of the bill, but it was actually affectionately referred to as the Horn Tootin Bill. And it was in the General Assembly uh, session of 1943 where the state um, first put operating dollars into its orchestra. It began funding the North Carolina Museum of Art just a few years later. Um, but to this day, we are the um, oldest and uh, most and, and uh, continuously funded uh, orchestra in terms of its relationship with with state government. So that, that partnership has endured a very, very long time, and it's that support from the state which explains in large part the, or, the organization's ability to serve this large state and to devote as much of its resources to music education. So yeah, if you're looking for someone to thank, I would start uh, by thanking uh, the good people of North Carolina who, uh, through their tax dollars and uh, through their elected officials, um, do their part to support this wonderful orchestra. It's good to hear. Yeah. As a student and speaking on behalf of other students, how do you believe uh, North, the North Carolina Symphony targets our demographic? It may not necessarily be the target demographic. How do you guys think you've reached out? One of the things that we do that I, I wish 
I got asked this question more frequently is because it's just one of these um, secrets that doesn't seem to, 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 the information doesn't get out there. Um, but we offer a, uh, a rush program where students can come down on the night of a concert and get in for, for the cost of a movie ticket. Um, certainly we have a, a great proximity to the North Carolina State campus and we play on campus at UNC and uh, UNCW. Um, and I, I just hope that students of all ages will take advantage of that and just come out and hear their orchestra um, and realize that it's actually kind of a cool thing to do. It makes for a great night out. Uh, I think that in terms of building an audience for the future, um, the orchestra needs to continue doing some of those alternative programs and, and doing things that you may not expect your orchestra to do. Um, I'll tell you that when we did that first tribute show uh, with the uh, with the Pink Floyd uh, band, it came out just just kind of see who would who would turn out for a show like this. And the average age of the audience was at least 20 years younger. And most importantly, it was a whole lot of people who had never been to the concert hall before. And so that was that was really gratifying. I mean, the way you know that is that they're all staring at their tickets and the lobby's all jammed up because no one knows where they're going, as opposed to a, That's a great thing more to typical, yeah, more typical concert. Everybody's kind of, yeah, I've done this a thousand times, and they go straight to their seats. Um, but but that was great. And so we, we learned a lot from that experiment, and, and here we are able to do things um, such as our Ben Folds ticket, which I, I talk a lot more about Ben Folds, but I don't have a single ticket left to sell, so that won't get us anywhere. <laughs> cool. Well, I think you've answered our questions about what the North Carolina Symphony is and how it exists. And that was Community Canvas on Eye on the Triangle with Mike Austin and Karen Marrera. For more on the North Carolina Symphony, check out wknc.org slash blog. And that wraps up another episode of Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. As always, make sure to check out the blog at wknc.org slash blog after the show for more and email us at publicaffairs at wknc.org.